Ladies and gentlemen, people of all gender expressions, thank you for checking out the North Bank Media Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Strevens. And it's that time again, right? Episode number 81. I'm here on the North Bank, ruminating, recollecting, remembering, all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, I mean, as you know, every time I click over to a new set of digits, um, 81, 91, 101, um, I, I like to sit down and do a solo episode and just you know, sort of grapple with some of the thoughts and, and some of the things that I'm, you know, learning by speaking to the guests and, and just ideas that are kind of presenting themselves to me um, as I go along. Um, I should say that, you know, if you're listening to these episodes, or you're watching on YouTube, I greatly appreciate it. Please, uh, you know, give us a like, subscribe, all that sort of stuff. That really um, means a lot as far as getting the, the podcast a wider audience, if such a thing were possible. Um, and of course, too, if you're listening, watching, and you're you're enjoying it or not, um, by all means, you know, drop us a line in the YouTube comments or uh, on Instagram at the North Bank Media Podcast, and um, let's get in touch. And let's, you know, if you've got a business to promote, you've got an interesting story, you've just you've got a life lived, you know, or a life that you're living. Let's uh, let's talk and let's let's uh, sort of form some of those connections that seem to be um, sorely missed uh, this day and age. Um, should say I'm coming to this episode with um, kind of without a lot of externalities. And by that, I mean, um, uh, you know, since the last Mooncast, I haven't spoken too much with uh, my friend Devin Bailey. And I bring that up because, um, you know, him and I, we were, we've basically been having a 15-year-long MSN Messenger conversation. And then, you know, with the advent of smartphones, we're, we're constantly texting, we're, we're firing ideas and information back and forth. And um, that's just kind of died down. It's not a negative thing. It's just... Um, I was going into a phase of, uh, I would say, deep creativity on a music video project, and uh, and Devin just for 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 personal reasons is kind of lying low uh, by his his description. So I bring that up because that that is a, a place in my life that's a huge flow of information uh, of ideas, and um, we've kind of stepped away from that for the time being. Uh, beyond that as well, just checking my levels here. Beyond that as well. Um, I took Twitter off my phone a couple of weeks ago and feeling better for it. You know, I mean, it's, it's a great place, but as Dave Chappelle says, it's not a real place, you know, and uh, every so often it's good to detox from that. But that constant flow of information and ideas can be, can be addicting, right? Like it, and it's not that it's not useful, but uh, I've, I've, so what I'm talking about here now is I'm coming to this from a place of, of myself uh, centered as sort of the, the, the origin or the, the locus, if you will, as the, the standard or the starting point for some of these ideas. So that is to say some of them are personal. They're my ideas, and they may not entirely be true, some of these things, but uh, again, what is truth? That's kind of up to the up to the viewer at this point. So if, if you're looking to this podcast as a source of truth, I would suggest looking elsewhere. If you're looking uh, at a place where we look to uh, <laughs> deepen or increase the problems, then I think you've come to the right place in that regard. So what I was what I was saying earlier was I'm coming out of a phase of deep creativity. I did pre-production on a music video over the last couple of weeks. And then just these last three days before this, I, uh, I finished, we shot it three days, uh, with a, you know, a small crew, but a, a crew nonetheless. Um, and, and when you're anyone who knows, I really do think that planning a film and shooting a film is not unlike a wedding, you know, to sort of liken it to a, a more, um, you know, quotidian or modern day thing, or I guess not modern day, of course, but a thing that, that anybody could understand truly producing a film and, and shooting a film is, is not unlike a wedding. It's a spreadsheet of, of line items that you have to check, check off and you, you go through it and it's a long day. <laughs> And uh, one film shoot day is like one wedding, so I, I feel like I kind of just planned and, and experienced three weddings, and uh, nobody even got drunk, so I don't even know really what the point was. But I'm all joking aside. I think I think it's it's a, it was a, a thing where I, I dove in head first, and uh, you know neglected some other things, some other people along the way, and uh, kind of just coming up for air now and uh, looking to sort of grapple with some ideas in a sort of fresh and naked sort of way so um that music video was for a song called shelter for the night that was uh written and produced and recorded by a man named arsh Kara, and he was on this podcast a number of months ago and it was through the podcast that i met him of course and and we talked and we have now built somewhat of a working creative relationship together and 
hoping that this could be a lifelong uh, creative relationship, you know, where he, he's continuing to make music and we're, we're talking and maybe we do uh, more music videos for him as his career and my career progress. And that, that kind of was a, uh, uh, an unforeseen benefit of the podcast from the outset. And then it became obvious to me that this is a great way to meet people, to find out about people and, and to find a way in which I can be a service to people uh, through my video production career and uh, connections. So but anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Although I would say if you're somebody who is looking for video marketing or video content, please consider North Bank Media. You know, so it's kind of intimidating then to 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 lay yourself bare in this sort of way. Although I'm not I don't mean to build this up into something. It's really <laughs> it's really going to get quite harebrained as we go along, but um it's intimidating to come to something like this, and it's like that the old joke about the comedian who, who's five minutes into the set is looking around going, what else, what else? What else is in the news, guys? So I guess where I decided to start was looking for a point of origin, a place to start, and I, I came up with um, Remembrance Day. That's today, November 11th. And, um, you know, there's... I mean, first and foremost, it's it's worth... It's a worthy holiday, I would say. I mean... To believe that narrative, to believe that story is that men before me um, did a lot more work and did something a lot harder and some of them paid the ultimate price so that I can uh, come down here on a Wednesday afternoon and and just blab into a camera and a microphone, you know. Um, I think it's worth remembering that people before us um, certainly had it harder, uh, bloodshed, killing, all that sorts of th- all those sorts of things. And uh, we today uh, reap those benefits um, Big time, big time. So uh, first and foremost, it's always a reminder to me and a kick in the ass for me to remember, you know, if I'm not living my life to the fullest, if I'm not at least trying to live to the fullest, uh, just think about the people who didn't have the chance to, to live to the fullest and who gave um, who gave their lives uh, so that I could do what? Jerk off on Twitter? Like, no. Uh, they gave your life so that you could maybe in some way yourself and all of us today could contribute to building a better life uh, if such a thing were possible, uh, I don't want to say that it seems impossible, but we have to at least uh, stand on their shoulders, if you will, and, and remember that we, in some ways, are imbued uh, with their life force. We, we go forward because of them, you know, because they stood up and because they paid the price. But, you know, there, what goes along with that is a, a sort of part... Um, a sort of another kind of mythologizing or, or, or romanticizing of these great men, you know, that went forward and that these great men seem to be missing today, you know, or there's that C.S. Lewis quote about men without chests, you know, um, as I hunch, uh, you know, this idea that, that great men are nowhere to be found and that, and that uh, masculinity is in crisis. Um, you know, I'm not, I'd love to go there today. I think I'm still working on that one, but, but this idea, um, that the men of today are somehow different, I think is not without substance. But um, I remember this World War II documentary I saw a few years ago. And uh, one of the men, he was a World War II veteran, and they were talking specifically about D-Day. And he said, you know, uh, imagine the consequences if we hadn't done our duty. You know, I don't want to misquote him or put words in his mouth, but what he more or less implied was that what they did was, was simply what was asked of them, you know. And, uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps that's, that's what's missing today. If people talk about, it's not that the men have any less character, it's that the, the duty that we're being called for is, is less apparent. Um, you know, I was thinking maybe the duty, maybe the call of duty isn't so loud these days, or maybe, maybe, maybe the call of duty is all around us and we're just not hearing it. We're not tuned into it, you know, um, in the way that a, a child who grows up without a father uh, quite often struggles to um, acknowledge or respect or understand, you know, stern paternal authority, um, you know, in the way that a man who's never <laughs> and never will have the love of a, like, gorgeous, 10 out of 10, stunning, beautiful woman, just in, in the way that a man who, for whatever reason, could never have that, will never have that, could never understand it. He could never understand how to master and attain that love, to make that woman stay. Um, you know, I think about Will Cardinal Maurer, a guest on this podcast who I touched base with recently. Um, and he told me a story on the podcast back in June about uh, a situation at the Bissell Center where it was a grandfather, a father, and a son, three generations living on the street in poverty. You know, that son 
he, he wouldn't even know what it would look like to get out of poverty, let alone begin the trek of getting out of poverty, potentially, you know. You see what I'm getting at here? Think about building an interstate next to an anthill. You know, the ants, there's no shit on them, right? Like, they, they have no concept of the interstate. So, in the way that the, the fatherless child can't respect paternal authority, uh, the, the way the hopeless, helpless, hapless man um, would never know what to do to get and stay with a beautiful woman, uh, the generational poverty, the ants living next to the interstate, the call of duty may be all around us, and we may, for whatever reasons, be tuned out. We may be unable to grasp that there is um, an existential crisis, just like there was in World War II, but it's just not as apparent. No. So then what came to mind was the thing that I said I would never talk about again, and that's our old friend COVID-19. And I, I think maybe some of us thought, or maybe some of us still think, that uh, COVID-19, uh, the viral pandemic, that is, was, was, was that call of duty. You know, we have responsibilities now in the face of this um, invisible enemy. Um, I think we can agree that it probably isn't that, you know. Um, it kills at a rate of 2%. Uh, and that number, of course, is heavily weighted into older age groups and folks who were previously immunocompromised or had um, comorbidities. And that's not to cheapen those that have died or been affected by COVID-19. I'm not saying that. I just don't think that when it, what may have at one time been seen as that call to duty, as that existential enemy that we could band together and um, do our part to defeat, um, it wasn't that. You know, and... Frankly, it just in the same way that World War II and the threat of authoritarianism uh, growing in the West, and and then what what grew out of that, that that put the world's back against the wall, truly. And COVID nineteen ultimately, I don't think, ended up doing that. Um, of course, in some sectors, in some places, such as healthcare, uh, that was the case, especially in this province, because they didn't get the help they needed in a big way. Um, but again, think about the consequences if the healthcare system and the healthcare workers hadn't done their duty. Uh, so again, I don't mean to cheapen uh, what played out over the past couple of years, but also um, it, it wasn't the giant existential force that, uh, an existential threat that maybe we, we, we would like it to be. And a lot of the hue and cry and the sort of um, alarmism over it, which seems to have tapered off, I think maybe was unnecessary in some ways. I bring that up because, uh, again, I do think that climate alarmism and climate change will, will become kind of the new um, existential crisis du jour, you know, rightly or wrongly. Um, but, you know, the politicization of the COVID-19 pandemic is a, is a different story. It's different. I really need to, I really separate that from the, the, the viral illness itself and the politicization, the reaction to it. You know, we're seeing a certain amount of people who are duty-bound, or they feel duty-bound, that is, to speak and to act, you know, whether it's healthcare workers urging vaccinations and safety measures, um, or whether it's people from <laughs> Eastern Bloc countries, Latin American countries, and, and Arabic countries who, who loudly vocalize their, their distrust of vac uh, vaccination mandates. You know, I've met both myself. I think, I think um, you know, just for one thing, a lot of those sort of anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine mandate protests, they, you know, they got a lot of bad press, and probably rightly so. Um, it, it wasn't all backwater rural white people. You know, there was what I, a phenomenon that I noticed in covering some of those protests, um, doing work with one of the news stations in town, was that you had a lot of people who were from Eastern Bloc countries and often Latin, Latin American countries who were very distrustful of this sort of government overreach because... In their lifetime, they probably saw far worse, far worse than um, far worse than, than what we're seeing now. But they, I think we could agree that in some ways, this government overreach is a stepping stone um, to those even sort of more stringent, um, those more stringent, um, you know, mandate mandates. You know, and maybe maybe there's something there, right? Like because I mean, surely you're aware of of the stories and the memes that um, that, that are circulating on the internet that authoritarianism didn't didn't bloom overnight. You know, in the case of of the USSR, China, Germany uh, in the '40s, it was it was bit by bit. 
law by law, brick by brick, you know, that's how the camps were built, that's how public opinion was swayed. It didn't just happen. I often think about Jordan Peterson's um, retelling of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, The Gulag Archipelago. He said that, to the effect, he said, hell came uh, to the Soviet Union as everybody was gradually forced to swallow more and more lies. So it's important to note here that I'm not saying that vaccine mandates or vaccine passports or that those sorts of things are, are in some way akin to the deaths of millions of people in a, in a Soviet gulag. Um, but I, I do think that in, in many ways, uh, mandated vaccinations, uh, lockdowns, uh, the sort of meeting out of which, which businesses are essential or not, signal to me a change in our social bearing i mean our, our political fate if you will the, the course that we're on here um you know m much of the governmental response to the pandemic i would say and again lockdowns um choosing which businesses are essential or not work stoppages replaced by government handouts that that's one that kind of flew under the radar but but the more i thought about it it, it was you know it, it's just uh you know, when the economy isn't paramount, as suddenly it became during COVID, you really have to wonder what else is in play. And now it's like I'm putting the tinfoil hat on. But again, I don't believe that there's some strings being pulled necessarily uh, right now. But but you could see the way in which you could see the way in which the society has shifted to to more government overreach and to a lot of people just sort of willingly accepting it. And really, I'm not. I'm done having the debate over what's right and wrong. I'm kind of surprised I'm even talking about this now, but um, look at what happened over the past couple of years and tell me that the governments in the West didn't use the pandemic to at least practice their overreach capabilities. You know, your life, your control was not your own for a while there. And I guess I would ask, uh, did it save lives? And how many people died as a result of those of that overreach? And now I think we're kind of into the final phase of this this story, this real sort of end of empire kind of shit, as I as I once called it. Where now the kids have become a bargaining chip. You know, I didn't plan on talking about this, so it's going to sound pretty pretty loose. But you know, there's this this move now to vaccinate children when we know for a fact that they are disproportionately not affected by COVID, and it's like, well, they could get it and spread it to an adult. Well, then maybe the adult should be vaccinated. Hmm. There's not a lot of data on, on how these vaccines react with children. And I think to force it on them, again, rightly or wrongly, I'm not, I'm not, but I'm just observing here as, a, as an outside observer on society, as someone who doesn't have kids, therefore, thank God, doesn't have skin in this particular game. Um, I, I worry, I worry, I worry, uh, where we, we've come to a place now where the, where the children are, are being used as a, a political football uh, in a bipartisan way, but as I said, it's like, well, at a certain point, you just have to accept the risk, right? Like now we're, we're coming into so-called flu season. Are, are we now going to, are we now going to continue wearing masks and locking down because of the flu? You know? And so really what, what, what kind of has emerged, I guess, is, is a sort of play between how much risk can you handle and how much can you stomach being told what to do? You know, there's no magic bullet here. I, we've, we've all kind of, or at least I personally, and I've tried to share this idea that there is no magic bullet here. There's no one-size-fits-all solution. This is a gigantic, well, I said it's not an existential foe. It's a sort of mid-grade <laughs> existential foe. There is no easy answer to it. It's a gigantic global problem. But... Instead of being duty-bound to inform oneself and use one's best judgment, I, I do think a lot of people just sort of um, accepted what was what was told to them, believed that the government had all the right, uh, had all the we reasons and ways in place to, to, to do what they needed to do, and, and they accepted a mitigation of the risk uh, in favor of being told what to do. So 
So, you know, in some ways I feel hypocritical myself because I personally chose to be vaccinated, uh, you know, because I think with my line of work, um, I, like I said before, I took a look at the way the wind blew and I just, you know, I felt like I, I could take that risk if I wanted to continue working uh, and, and living the sort of free, uh, free lifestyle that I do live uh, as a freelancer and as someone who's building my own business. Um, I took the risk, <laughs> myocarditis and all. Um, but I think just like it would take a little more than COVID to kill me, um, it would take more than two shots of Pfizer to kill me also. So again, I, I took the risk and I informed myself. But having said that, allow me to knock on some wood here. The point being is if I view vaccine passports, vaccine mandates, lockdowns, all that governmental overreach that was tied to the pandemic um, as a step toward authoritarian hell, and yet I chose to be vaccinated anyway, in some sense, I didn't hold the line. But I did, however, do the research and take the risk, and I never once forced anybody or told anybody that I, I thought that they should or shouldn't be vaccinated. If anything, I just advocated for people to make their own decision. I don't even know if I'm going to leave that in. I don't know why I even wrote any of that. I, I don't care. I really don't care. <laughs> but with that out of the way, let's get to the real meat of this podcast. Um, or at least where I wanted to go. Um, I wanted to... I was thinking, I've been thinking and thinking and thinking about this tweet that I saw quite some time ago, maybe a month or more ago. Um, that said, the gist of the tweet, I wish I had saved it or screenshotted it, but it was that... The gist of the tweet was that once once you speak and write your mind, once you express yourself, you've lost. Once you speak and write your mind, once you express yourself, you've lost. And I think they were talking specifically about like expressing yourself online on a podcast, a blog, social media, that kind of thing. Once you express yourself, like once you broadcast your thoughts widely, you've lost. <laughs> Then they finished with kind of a strange non sequitur. They said, even Cumtown is boomer. So <laughs> if you're not familiar with, with the podcast Cumtown, um, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's not for everybody. I'll say that I'm a fan personally, because I can, I believe I can see the irony that sort of informs all of it. Um, it's really just, it's three sort of mildly or mildly successful New York stand-up comedians. Um, they're millennials, you know, in their mid to late thirties. And really it's just two hours a week of them sitting around shooting the shit, trying to make each other laugh. And it's, it's not polished, you know, many episodes just begin and end midstream. Um, you know, they, they antagonize their sponsors when they read the advertisements, uh, they punch down, they, they do racial, racial slurs, uh, you know, racial caricatures, um, they punch down, like I said, they punched each other, you know, like they, they, sometimes two of them will gang up on the other one. It's, um, but you know, to call it boomer kind of, I had to really grapple with that because to me it was very much, um, sort of peak millennial, you know, this sort of mid thirties nihilism, you know, that, you know, the millennial is no longer the face of what's hip these days. And, uh, to me that this, what what's comes from that is just this sort of not really giving a fuck about what you say and, and I suppose going after anyone because this idea of having protected classes in society you know as as is sort of pushed by progressives um they use comedy to kind of fight against that and you know I suppose if you if you were to say that um come town is boomer what you'd mean is that these guys are essentially using comedy to sort of say what they think and a lot of what they think is just sort of it's a distrust of institutions. It's a distrust of really anybody, anybody else's thought. And it's a distrust in taking things too seriously. You know, there's a serious nihilism and disenfranchi uh, disenfranchisement there. So I guess using comedy as, as a discourse is, is what they're doing. And so maybe what's boomer then, what, what's boomer about Cometown then is, is that, uh, is that they, they, they speak their minds in, in some way. And that's way more intellectualizing than, than that show deserves, I think. Uh, and I say that as a fan of that show and a patron of the show on Patreon. I should say, too, that that show makes close to 100 grand a month on Patreon. Doing one episode a week, those guys make 100 grand a month. So 
obviously there's an audience for that sort of humor. I find myself in that audience, but I think it's important not to intellectualize it. You know? So then obviously if, if using comedy to speak your mind is boomer now, um, then this show is certainly boomer. And when we talk about boomer, I think, <laughs> I think it's something like sort of being out of touch with, with with the way things are and you know you definitely think about the free love in the 60s and that that whole hippie generation where like you know my feelings and my uh my sort of perspective on things is somehow paramount and my growth and you know obviously the use of psychedelic drugs rejecting government rejecting the war living in communes all that sort of thing um gender fluidity grew out of that movement you could see how it's a very, in some ways, selfish or, or personal um, 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 movement. And, and maybe, maybe in some ways when they say that it's boomer, boomer, you know, it's, it's that idea where like my take on things, my perspective of things is of paramount importance and I'm going to broadcast it out. And that's a problem, allegedly. And it might be. So I even said at the start of this, project this show almost a year ago that i wanted it to help me formulate ideas and 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 find out what i thought and it's certainly done that and i've even toyed with the idea of just being done after 100 episodes but i I guess we'll see so i've done a really poor job this up to this point in making a point at all but let me put it this way. It's tough because we're in a time now when everybody everybody speaks their mind, more or less. Everybody feels empowered more so generally to speak their mind through social media. Even, even in conversation, you, I find people these days just will overshare and tell you things you didn't even know you didn't want to know. I think in some ways, maybe maybe the pendulum has to swing back. And Maybe shows like this where I sit and tell you what I think, maybe that's part of the problem. You know, maybe that is part of the problem, right? Because I'm dramatizing and I'm narrativizing my thoughts. I'm packaging and delivering how I think and feel my entire lived human existence. I'm, I'm, I'm making it into an object and handing it to you and then telling you what, what you're going to do something with this, (laughs) you know? Uh, truly, truly, the depth of the human spirit is infinite. Oh, bald eagle. Fuck yes. Oh, that's incredible. Wow. Bald eagle. Son of a bitch. a good sign hey (laughs) or not (laughs) i don't know i should look that up what's symbolically if you are blessed with the presence of a bald eagle is that a good thing i feel like it's got to be apex predator shit hmm so i think you know devin and i talked a little bit about this less so on the mooncast and more just personally but this idea of people getting attached to objects right or or the or the word cathexia which is an emotional attachment to an object you know in in a way what 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 podcasts and social media and blogs and even even a one-on-one real life conversation is it takes the lived human experience you know the problems that we're having or the issue or whatever it may be whatever it is I'm trying to communicate it puts it into an object and then hands it you know delivers it to somebody else well maybe that's maybe that's part of the problem today truly you know in the in the face of real catastrophe let me let me let me start again in the in the face of no real catastrophe the fact that there is nothing on the horizon that truly is threatening my life at this moment like generally and don't tell me climate change <laughs> I, I in the face of this state of relative peace and security I've made a problem. I've, I've now taken it upon myself to objectify my thoughts and make them palatable to others. 
Who said that's a good idea? Now, now, millions of people around the world certainly think it's a good idea. We're doing it every day on social media. And as I said, in, in conversation with others at work, parties, gatherings, whatever, a lot of people like to give you a lot, which <laughs> it's not always useful. And it's like, well, what do you want me to do with that? So I guess I could be talking about or working toward a form of conservatism, not like political conservatism, but again, politics are informed by personality and by, by mental states and by a psychological analysis, we can get to a political analysis. So maybe I'm advocating for a true conservatism, like literally keep some shit to yourself. Conserve a little bit, you know? So I guess the question I'd ask, as I'd like to get in the habit of asking more questions and not thinking I have all the answers, is this era of talking about it? Normal, let's normalize talking about it. Is it really helping anyone? You know, I mean broadcasting your self-developments, your battle with trauma, your problems, your thoughts. Just broadcasting that out to the world at large. Is that helpful? Or, 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 is, it in some, or is it doing the opposite? You know, is it forcing you to simplify? Is it forcing you to overstate and repeat and relive? Instead of do the actual internal work? Now, surely talking about your problems is part of solving the problems, but are we talking about our problems in the right way? See, like my, my biggest personal problems will never be spoken about on this show, right? Like to do so, I think would actually enlarge the problem than enlarge the problems, right? Because, because now <laughs> I've enlarged the problem by, by simplifying it, uh, you know, making it understandable to somebody other than myself and then giving it to somebody. So now, now the problem is actually multiplied. And if three people, 10 people, 12 people watch this, now there's, now that problem has multiplied by a dozen. And you don't know anything about the problem. You just know what I was able to sputter out. Right? Like any solution you could offer would, would in some ways be useless. Right? Because every moment of, of lived human experience has the weight of every other moment of lived human experience behind it. You dig? Like, does that make sense? Every moment, every understanding I have has the weight of my entire life behind it. There's no way in the world I could possibly give that to somebody and expect them to do anything useful with it. It's like, it's like every moment is an infinite spiraling kaleidoscope that folds in on the moment. And then the next moment, same thing. But now it's an infinite kaleidoscope of kaleidoscopes folding in on that moment. It's like a fractal of fractals. You see how the, you see how the, the lived experience of a human life is, is truly infinite when every moment is exponentially heavier than the moment before because of the experience that led to the moment. How then could we possibly expect anybody to help us with anything? You know, what, what, what I essentially would do, what I essentially would do by, by, by talking about my problems on a podcast or, 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 or tweeting about them or, or trying to do some weird Instagram cry for help in my story is, is take that problem and flatten it, Blue Jay. You think I have ADD? Would be to flatten that problem into a disc and hand it to you. And that would, that would do nothing. To, to, to justify nothing, nothing to enlighten, nothing to illuminate the leagues and leagues and leagues, you know, the fathoms of dark, murky ocean of my existence, blood, sweat, tears, and hormones, and lived experience compressed into a disc and then thrown into your ocean, it's useless. So, I'm not saying don't talk about your problems, I'm just saying... Ask questions about your problems first and have somebody, if you're going to somebody for real advice or real help, just ask a whole lot of questions about the problems. You know, I was, um, had a great conversation with a friend of mine named AJ and she said, the answer to life is a question. That blew my mind. That blew my mind for real. Just as I say, there is no magic bullet. There is also no bottom, you know? We have to just probe deeper and deeper and gain a, a better understanding 
of the issues, of the problem, before we can ever hope for a solution. And a solution might be something like an evolving process that you just build into your becoming, you know? So, November is allegedly Men's Health Month. So, when I see the old gestural hand-wringing on social media for men's health, now it's come around to men. That's how you know they're running out of fucking, you know, that's how they're running out of people to, to, to martyr. It finally came around to men. And I, I truly, I had to laugh at it because yes, health is paramount. Make no mistake about that. I'm not, I'm not uh, going down any kind of real wingnut corridor, although maybe I am, but you know, it couldn't be more gestural. It really couldn't. Or truly, if you like, it couldn't be more Christian. And you know, Nietzsche, I believe, said that Christianity actually came from Plato because you know, Plato had this idea of the Platonic form. And now I'm really speaking out of school because I barely remember this, but the idea that, you know, and I also used to hate in school, like even in university level philosophy, they'd, they'd try to explain, explain the platonic form using like an apple or a chair. You know, it's like, that doesn't quite get it. It's like the, the idea of the platonic form is like, okay, look at this river behind me. Slowly it's freezing over. You can see the ice flows. I have no idea really what that is. I just can look at it and think about it and know that I wouldn't want to go in there and it's moving and it's clear or it's reflective. Like, But for Plato, there is this thing called the, there's the platonic form of the river that explains essentially what that is. See, for Plato, there is an essential external objective truth of what the river is. Right? So you could see good Lord, help me get back to where I was. <laughs> you could see then how that would lead to Christianity, that there's this objective external truth that, that we could perhaps tap into or, or, at least be, or at least be faithful enough to believe I could have a relationship with. But I just, I just don't buy this, this, this men's health month. Obviously, go to the doctor. Obviously, take care of yourself. That's not the point. But it's it's when when you advocate when you when you advocate for somebody else's health. Truly, you you take on their sin, and their death and their life onto your own. Why? Why truly? Because if you if if you really wanted to do that, you would do it. But if you were doing it, but you're doing it in a gestural way, in a public way, right? Like. You're martyring yourself for attention. You're taking on the sins of another by advocating that people have to look out for their own health. It's like, obviously. And if people can't, or people, people can't face the responsibility of their own health, then maybe you should physically actually try and help them. I, I don't see how social media outreach and, and that kind of gestural bullshit uh, helps. I really don't. Maybe, maybe someone can explain it to me. I think when you see something like men's health month on social media it's the mutation of what i was just saying what i've been speaking to up to this point right like in a world where your interpretation of the problem your interpretation of things becomes public discourse right like you you feel the need to package up what you think you know and throw it out there in the discourse and make that the spirit of the conversation you know you okay you're not a man let's say you think you know about men's problems and now you say oh men have problems you're using my problems you're using men's problems as currency and and social capital for your own gain truly you're objectifying a problem under the guise of this gestural um collectivism and you're selling it back to people to show yourself off as being virtuous Okay, that right there to me, that right there is the spirit of the problem. It's the mutation of what, what really has become the spirit of our age. The interpretation, my personal interpretation, I'm infusing that into the discourse and making the discourse about my point of view. Conversely, I'm then taking the identity of the collective that I have bestowed upon them. Men, 
men generally have a problem with their health. They have anger. They don't want to speak up. Men get raped too. All those sorts of things that you hear that are true. I'm putting that on them because I thought of it. And now I'm going to take it back onto myself. What a good person I am for speaking up about those problems that I've actually just given them. You know, I've talked plenty on this show with, uh, with some of the guests about, you know, what's the, what's the problem with men? I think if there is a problem with men, I mean, there's plenty, surely. <laughs> and now I, I, I risk going down the same road of this collectivism and saying, well, what's the problem with men? Well, how about this? Let's go back to what I was saying before about this new form of conservatism. I think there may be a problem with, with men in the, in the lack of conservation and the lack of keeping things to oneself. There's this idea that if you could just keep on talking and keep on going and keep on giving and keep on doing and keep on grinding, eventually you'll become a good person. Eventually you'll find it. Eventually you'll make it. Eventually you'll be saved when really salvation comes from within the energy that you generate keeping that within but this is a half-baked idea that i'd really rather not entertain too much more i think the brakes are off the train i really do certainly the brakes are off the train on this on this particular episode (laughs) i don't know if i've made one single cogent point but i never promised to and now i'm even saying that i shouldn't even be doing this to begin with this is a true exercise in futility but there's an idea here that that needs to be worked on for sure um and now now we're at the dawn of the age of the metaverse right whereas now and i've talked a lot on this show about the idea of the absurd where it's like of course the universe is chaotic of course the universe and that which is external to us is a problem in the sense that like we can't truly understand it and so what's left then is to make meaning that works for me to at least understand it in some way that i could develop myself develop my passions and live life without going completely insane right but um central to that idea is that the universe does exist and is external to me and 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 is in some i hate to say objective but is in some way you know, we can't deny it. We can't deny that there are, is so much out of our control and understanding. That we are a minuscule grain of sand next to an ocean, an infinite ocean. But now, and in the face of that, if you choose to make meaning, however you wish, at least there's that. At least you can say, well, there's a whole lot that I don't understand and there's a whole lot outside of me, but here's how I look at things. That's all I'm doing. But now, you know, with this idea of the metaverse, you know, with, I mean, you just, just look at online forums, became online gaming communities, became kids spending their entire lives online. People, not even just kids, but people having a better life and a better existence in a virtual world, in an online world. Now, I think through immersive technologies like VR, right, virtual reality, augmented reality, Artificial intelligence, too, would play into that. You risk people building a world, people building a universe where they they spend more time and have a better experience living in it. The issue there becomes they themselves are the point of reference for that universe. There is no external objective. There, I said it. There is no uh, external objective universe in this scenario. And that's dangerous. If you can have a world that's tailored completely to you and it's just an unending feedback loop, your thoughts are the reality. Now, it's important to make a distinction here where, you know, I I do believe that how you choose to look at yourself mirrors how you choose to look at the world. But I'm still advocating for for the existence of an external and objective universe outside of me. But I can choose how to perceive it. I can. I can choose how to make meaning out of it by how I look at myself. Like, if you want to make the world a better place, good luck. I don't think it's possible. But I do think that you can make yourself better, right? Like, you can, you can see in yourself the potential to improve. 
you can then do concrete, tangible things to improve yourself. Then you can realize, well, if that's possible, obviously the potential for improvement and growth exists generally. So I can go out into the world with the mind that if I continue improving myself, I can at least have a better experience in the world. You know, the world in some ways is like a canvas that you could choose how you want to paint onto it. I really believe that. I really believe that once you improve the way you think about yourself, look at yourself, feel love for yourself, you can then take that point of view and just turn it out into the world. You know, the world doesn't give a fuck. This river does is nothing. It doesn't care about anything. It's it's completely, for one, it's external to me, but it, it means nothing. But I can choose to see it as beautiful because I'm choosing a little bit every day to try and love myself, to try and do good things for other people, to try and contribute in some way to this craziness, to, to live a life that that at least I can enjoy and feel feel accomplished for. I can then map that point of view onto that river and say, well, that river's beautiful. You know? That river is beautiful. I see beauty in that river because I see beauty in myself first. You know, you know, Michael Jackson said it probably better than most when he said, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make that change. I think we misheard Michael because now... I don't, nobody wants to make the world a better place in this scenario. Generally, I'm speaking broadly here. People would prefer to use technology to build a world, build a world that is an extension 100% of themselves. And that's a wholly selfish thing. That's sort of the overrun of the ego. Um, so when I was talking earlier about um, people who were happy to be governed, you know, people who wanted to believe that there was a, a magic bullet, a one-size-fits-all answer to massive global problems such as COVID, and people who believe that they can just hand off their problems to others. I think what we're seeing now is the, is the next step in that line of thinking. It's this, it's this uh, objectifying and this emotional attachment to things outside of the self. And now, now, if the metaverse does what it probably will do like an episode of black mirror or uh and through the use of augmented reality you know like devin and i joked about it on the last mooncast like the high level bridge could now become let's go brandon bridge if i want it to be like i can put on my augmented reality glasses and i can see that like it's a it's a joke but it's also not a joke people can now technology aided build a world that reflects only their point of view rather than using their point of view to reflect out onto the world. I think I want to steal one thing from Joe Rogan where he said he was talking about this with Ben Shapiro, (laughs) but he said, you know, this entire virtual world, the online, all of it, the metaverse, everything, it needs power to function, right? If the power grid goes down, and the metaverse and all those online communities and the, the, the virtual worlds that people are building for themselves are destroyed, then what's left? And Ben Shapiro said, well, then the only people that, are, that will be left that will be of any use in the world will be religious Christians, religious Jews, and religious Muslims. It's quite funny, but, but then it got me thinking, well, then that's where duty is calling from. Right? Like, if we're at risk of having this egotistical, selfish pursuit of building a world that's just me. I only see what I want to see. Again, there's a fine line there. In this scenario, this egotistical virtual world that people are working on building, it's nothing but their perspective. It's, it's, it's only as big as, as they allow it to be. Whereas I can say that everything external to me is infinite and I can impose my my perspective and understanding of it but of course knowing that there is no it's it too is infinitely deep whereas this virtual artificial world that's being built in the metaverse is just that artificial and flat because someone could yank the cord right massive electrical storm comet ice storm whatever hack you know like a, a, a hack hack 
um, someone could hack it, right? An, an illegal actor, if you will. Um, any number of things could knock out the power grid and then destroy those virtual worlds and then what's left. So when I say that duty is calling, that's where you have to look and that's where you have to listen. There's a, there's, there's a culture and a spirit of selfish objectification and egotism that's building a virtual world that is flat and useless, self-serving. I think if anything, it's, it's, it's the duty of our generation and those coming under us to reject that, to build real human connection and real human relationships. You know, because where, where does this go? If you have legions and legions of people living in a, in a fake world and that gets pulled out from under them. What if a real war came and we, and we had to depend on people? I think the human desire to map the world and the human desire to map the self got confused. We kind of cheapened and simplified this self-knowledge because you can objectify it, pass it around, talk about it without doing any real deep understanding. And again, I'm sure plenty of people do. I'm, t- I'm straw manning and steel manning as I go to make a point. The desire to map the world kind of just became, kind of became too big and scary. And the desire to know the self, same thing. So why don't I just take what little understanding I have of myself and build a world around that? Sounds like a prison to me. Thank you for listening to the North Bank Media Podcast. If you enjoy this conversation, please subscribe on YouTube and give us a like. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe as well and leave a five-star review.